Hello, there we go. <coughs> yes, Philip is right. Uh, I was in Orlando this past week speaking at a retreat. And of course, leave it up to me to get sick in a warm weather place. But I did. Uh, so I realized my voice is nasally to begin with, but today is especially nasally. So uh, bear with me as we go through this. Um, but uh, yeah, open up your Bibles. We're going to read from the book of 2 Timothy. It's kind of uh, tucked away back there in the back of your Bible. Um, it's one of the uh, letters that Apostle Paul writes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 6 through 8. A uh, quick little passage. Um, and uh, we'll read it together. We'll pray together. And then we'll kind of jump in, um, I think, the way that we hopefully will need to. Um, and as Philip isn't praying for me, uh, please do pray for me. Because, uh, oopsie, uh, my mind, I feel like, is like all over the place. So hopefully I'll be able to focus and speak clearly and, and not say gibberish. But Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out, I as past, uh, Apostle Paul, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. So in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, and then jump in. Father, we give you thanks. It is New Year's Day, a brand new day of the whole new year, year I should say, uh, and we give you thanks for 2016, uh, we give you thanks for who you are always, and we pray that indeed as we've been learning through and through in the many different ways that you would continually reshape our vision and our sight and our understanding of you and the reality and the world that we live in, and in doing so that you would give us much life, God, that you would give us much joy and that you would give us yeah, much goodness for us to live in. And so, Father, we look forward to what you are going to be up to, what you are always up to, and what you've been doing all this time. We pray that you would help us to see that and do that well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's a little crazy that 2017 is here. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Legit, today is New Year's Day. Uh, although I thought, you know, New Year's Day being on Sunday doesn't ever happen very often, but Ashley Cho corrected me today, and we realized it happened in 2012, literally four years ago. So uh, it happens more than we think, but for whatever reason, I was like, I can't remember the last time New Year's was on a Sunday. But every New Year's Day or around this time, we go and look back and we go, man, I can't believe a whole another year has passed. And I think many of us would agree that in 2016, what we saw was quite the year. I think the world recognized the kind of year that 2016 was. We experienced some really highs and some really lows in 2016 as an entire world. And I think we can go and if you look in the history books, I think 2016 will kind of be marked as one of those years where some significant things happened that my kids, uh, Mason and Connor and Kara, will be learning about when they're in high school um, 10, 12 years from now, whenever that is. I think our country, in the same way, has experienced some really highs and really lows dating back as recently as the election onto some of the things that the Supreme Court has done and some of the stuff that we've seen in, in, in the country this year with Black Lives Matter and the shooting in Orlando and just all these different things. And as we reflect and go further deeper into the specificity of our community, I think we can agree that we've experienced some spectacular highs, but also some spectacular, if you want to call it that way, lows. I think what we do at this time of year, generally, is we kind of look back, and if you go on Instagram for more than two seconds, you'll see everyone has a, you know, for the really cool people, they have this really fancy picture of themselves or some fancy, like, you know, like a landscape. It's like the beach or like, you know, some like, you know, 
boardwalk or something, you know, at the clouds and whatever, and then they, they kind of write this long post about what 2016 was about, and we, we reflect on what has passed, on what has happened, and then we look forward to another year, a better year, a more fulfilling year. And the way that we generally do this is we look back at the years that's gone, and then what we do is we make resolutions about the new year. And even if you're like me and you're not into like New Year's resolutions per se, where you like write down the things and you have a list of things and you put them away so you can check back like six months later. Some people do that, by the way. They, they like write resolutions, they put them away, and then six months later they open that drawer back up to see how like they're progressing as if they've forgotten what the New Year's resolutions are. But whether you do this or not, basically every single person, they look at January 1st as an opportunity to kind of start new, start fresh, start anew things that they've done well and not and that the more they reflect, the more they are resolute in doing better, right? And so again, we find ourselves excited, energized to start the year off well. And I think as a society and as a culture, we're kind of inundated or we're obsessed with this idea of starting well. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but that's the reason why every single year, millions of people in the world will have a new diet plan that starts January 1st. Or actually, sorry, January 2nd, because you want to party on January 1st and then you wait till the next day. But as many of you have recognized with every diet plan or exercise plan that maybe you've ever ventured to go on, it's easy to start well. They might last, hopefully, at least a week. For some of us, I think if we're being honest, they last like a day, maybe two, right? Or they last like three hours and then you go, wait, aren't you on a diet? Tomorrow. We're starting tomorrow. Next week, right? Study habits. For many of you students, you go, you know what? The last two semesters or this past semester, not the greatest. I'm going to really buckle down and you know what, for, some, for you freshmen, you're like, you know what, the first semester was just like this get to know you of high school, so I'm going to really start to kind of up my game, right, like, you know, step the game up and then, you know, kind of really start to develop my study habits and then sophomore year realize, same thing, you go, you know what, I have one semester left before I get to junior year, which is a really important year, so I'm going to really build on my study habits so I can really get there and then, of course, junior year, if you're looking at me like, man, the first half of junior year is over. I have one semester to really make it count so that I can get to senior year and do my applications. And of course, if you're a senior, you're like, you know what? I don't got to study anymore. So I resolute to play more league. Just kidding. Don't do that, by the way. But again, these resolutions, whether you write them down or not, these, 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 these thoughts that we have and these desires we have, again, how long do they last? A week? Maybe two? Do they even last your first six weeks? Isaac Kim is laughing over there. He's like, it lasts a day, maybe. It's the reason why we have this thing called the infamous honeymoon period in relationships, right? When a relationship starts, the very beginning is this honeymoon phase where everything is nice, everything is lovely, they all love each other, no arguing, no bickering, and all of a sudden, whenever the honeymoon period is over, I don't know when it, when it ends, but whenever the honeymoon period is over, obviously then things go back to reality or they maybe went to reality in the first place. So we love starting well. We love to start things. We love to have energy about things. We love to have ideas and grand dreams about where things are going to go. But finishing well, we're not a culture that finishes well, it seems. Or even, I would say, we're not a culture that lives well. Finishing well or living well throughout to put yourself in a position to finish well is much harder to do than starting well, right? And unfortunately for many of us, I think we'd agree it's not really about how you start, more so than how you do and how you finish. Infamously, the Golden State Warriors were up 3-1 against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Started off hot. Didn't finish so hot. William Choi's laughing, but his Oklahoma City Thunder 
were up the same 3-1, up against those same warriors, started off well, but didn't finish off so hot. Some of the most famous sports stories are of the epic comebacks. One of the biggest ones was, I think, 2004. The Boston Red Sox were down 3-0 to the New York Yankees, came back to win four straight, completing the most epic comeback ever. You can start off well, and that's great. But if you don't finish well, then what does it ever even really mean, right? And I think for us as Christians, as we start a new year, following Christ, following God, and being a disciple is much the same. We love to start well. Whether it's New Year's or any point in the year, we love to resolute to do things better. Many of you are probably thinking this year, you know what, 2017, I'm going to love my parents more. But be honest, how many of you said that last year? And the year before, this year I'm going to resolve to whatever more or do this better. So I think what we've done is we've placed the focus on making resolutions or making, uh, you know, fresh energetic proposals about what we're going to do more, be more kind, pray more, be better, whatever. But it's really hard to do in the midst of a world that's constantly changing, constantly challenging your faith, constantly enticing you and pressuring you to walk away from God or, or not do the things that you're doing. And then obviously, we are too ADHD most of the time to actually carry out many of the things that we say we like to do. But as a pastor friend of mine named David Larry likes to say, for Christians, the best days and the best years are always ahead. So it's not about how you start. You're actually not starting anything this new year, it seems to me. You're just continuing something that God has always been doing. That each and every single day what we want is to have more grace, more love, more peace, more joy, more and more of each and every single day on for eternity, more and more of the things that God's doing. So we're not really starting new today. Jason, uh, our drummer slash bass player slash everything extraordinaire, commented, doesn't really feel like 2017. And then I asked him, like, what does that even mean? And he's like, well, it means, like, it's New Year, but it doesn't feel any different. Like, and I was like, yes, precisely. Because nothing ever really feels that new. We have thought that new. But last I checked, I looked very similar when I woke up this morning as I did when I went to bed. I was the same height as I was last night, right? My family was still the same. I still had three kids and a beautiful wife. So as we enter 2017, I would like to challenge us as a church, as a youth group, to focus on how we might not start well, make resolutions on changing things all the time, but how we might better understand how we might live well and therefore put us in a position, as we will see from Paul, Apostle Paul here in 2 Timothy, to finish well. That I think what we would like to do this new coming year and on and on and so forth as Poema and as KCPCH, is to live well each day so that when our time comes that we will be in a position to finish well. So we will not be the Golden State Warriors or the Oklahoma City Thunder. And as much as I do not like to say it, that we might be a bit more like the Cleveland Cavaliers if you're using the sports analogy. Sorry, ladies, if you don't understand. So let's read the scripture again. Dig into it. And let's see what I think Apostle Paul is teaching us, some lessons that I think we can learn about how to live well. So let me read it for you again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I've kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, 
the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Now, Paul is writing a letter, and if you know Apostle Paul, you know he loves to write letters. He writes letters to all of his churches. He writes letters to Ephesus, right, Corinthians, and all that kind of stuff. This is a letter, one of the two that he wrote to his beloved uh, mentee or friend, Timothy. But Paul is writing, unlike the other times, Paul is writing knowing that in mere days or even moments, he's going to be executed. He's writing in prison, and if you know anything about Paul, Paul's been in prison quite a bit. And he writes a lot from prison. It seems like that's where he does the best of his writing. But this time is a little bit different. He's been in prison before, but he's going to be executed really soon. He knows his days are literally ticking down and there aren't very much time left for him. The emperor Nero has had it with him and he's about to execute him. And so when you read the letter, you might expect, as maybe many of us would write, if we had days left and we knew our end was coming, you might expect that this, right, uh, this letter is, is downtrodden or sad or that he's, he's full of despair, angry, or fearful. He's about to face imminent execution. If you know anything about the Roman government back then, executions back then weren't pretty. They sucked. They were not easy. But you, if you read the entire letter, you'll read and you'll recognize that Paul's not despairing. He's actually not very discouraged at all. Paul has one thing on his mind is to encourage Timothy to live well so that he can finish well. And Paul is resolute in finishing well and handing off the baton, as it were, to Timothy. Saying, Timothy, you have a job to do. You've been called to do something. Do it well. And so when I read the letter, when I read this particular part of the passage, I was actually shocked. Because I did a little further research and I realized his imprisonment wasn't just any normal imprisonment. And sorry for the disgusting language that's about to come. This prison that he was sitting in is probably the worst prison ever dreamed up by anyone. It makes any modern day prison look like a Hyatt hotel. So his prison cell was dug, I think, 20 or 30 feet into the ground, and they put up just a concrete slab, and they enclosed the whole thing, and they dug a hole like maybe three or four feet wide right at the top. And you basically entered into the prison cell via a rope or a ladder, and that's the only way you went in or out. And so they lowered Paul in there, and basically what they did was they gave him a little bit of food to eat, and they lowered it down via a tray, I think, on a rope. And so it was complete darkness, no windows, no furniture, no toilet, no running water, no nothing, just concrete slab and a little hole at the top, which wasn't light anyway because above it was another room that was dark. And every once in a while they would come and they would lower his thing. So he's living in darkness, living in solitude, living in the cold. I'm sure it's pretty cold down there. And worse, he was living literally around the stench of his own urine and his own excrements because he had no place to go. So if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, again, maybe this is graphic detail that you don't need, but he probably designated a corner of this prison to do his business and then another corner where he could lay down and sit and whatever. And there have many studies been done about people who live in the darkness and who live alone for a long time, solitary confinement. They go crazy. And he's been there for a little while. And not only has he been there, he knows. And he's being told that he's going to be executed very, very soon. And to add to this, Paul, if you know anything about what he did, he was on a journey all over Asia Minor and all this stuff, traveling to all these places, evangelizing, preaching the gospel, and helping people to set up churches. And he brought along a bunch of people, his friends, and other people that had joined him. And at this point along his journey, pretty much everyone other than Timothy, it seems, has deserted him, has gone back on their word. Believing in false teachers, 
going back to something that they were not a part of before. And so Paul is alone, dirty, smelly, maybe psychologically damaged, maybe not. Seeing the work that he's done throughout his life, it may be meaning nothing, meaning nothing at this point. And yet through all that, in this letter, Paul somehow is strangely confident and assured of the life that he lived and the life that he hopes Timothy will live once he's gone. And I think the way that Paul is able to do this is the thing that we want to look at today. The way that Paul is able to live well even in the situations that he's in, which is terrible, and then to be able to finish well is because he has a very clear understanding of his present situation, the past of his life, and indeed the future of where he's going. So I think for us, we want to constantly have a well awareness of our present situation, what it means, what the past has meant for us, and indeed where we are going in the future. And I think if we have these three things in concert with one another, then we will indeed live well and put ourselves in a position to finish well and therefore be done maybe with this idea of always starting well. So let's break these down, and then hopefully we'll be able to bring it all together a little later. So Paul's view of the present, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. If you read Paul's letter very carefully, you begin to realize that there's themes about what like, Paul likes to say. So if you read in Ephesians, Corinthians, Romans, and all this stuff, Paul loves this language of sacrifice. Paul sees his life as a sacrifice. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So what Paul is saying is right before he's about to die, he's reiterating and he's confirming again and again that what is about to happen to him, which is death, is really just a con continuation of what his life has been all about from the very beginning. Paul sees his life as this continuing, ongoing sacrifice, which is to say that when he does die, then it's literally nothing has really changed. He was always a sacrifice, and this moment when he's done is going to be that same thing as a sacrifice to God, which is why he says it's poured out like a drink offering. And he uses this language very specifically. In the Old Testament, they had this custom found in Numbers 28 that they would take the lamb, right, present it to the sacrifice, put it on the altar, right, to sacrifice for his sins. And right before they would light the lamb on fire to burn it and to sacrifice it, a priest would go and take a bottle of wine or a quart of wine and then pour it on the lamb. And then they would light it up. So what Paul is saying is his entire life has been that very same act. The lamb that was sacrificed, that's Jesus, and his life is a poured out sacrifice upon the lamb, continuing the work of the lamb. What he sees as life, his present reality, is a drink offering. And he says it's already being poured out, which means the entire time Paul has been doing everything, his life's just been a slow pour, maybe, of the wine upon the lamb, a sacrifice for the kingdom. And the Greek word for already or being poured out, already being poured out, suggests that what it's doing is it's coming to its completion. So then what Paul is saying is literally at this last moment of his life, he sees his life as the very last drops of wine that's in the bottle. And it's time for all the wine to have come out. Which is why then Paul says to Timothy in verse 5, you need to endure and finish your calling. Because my time is coming to an end. But he's saying, but... I'm not all that worried because my life has already been being poured out all the time. Now it's just time for the last bit to be poured out. 
See, Paul's life, I think, was one that was able to finish well and live well because he understood what his reality was, a life sacrificed for the kingdom of God so that his, through his sacrifice, others might live well, live well and finish well. Now, you might say at this point, like, Pastor, sorry to break it to you, but I'm not really cool with that because I don't want to live my life as a sacrifice, TBH. Got places to go, got things to do. I'll sacrifice for others when I'm good and ready, and I'm not ready. I'll start sacrificing and living for others when I've lived for myself well enough. But I thought about this for a little bit. I thought about this attitude for a little bit. And I thought that this attitude, although it sounds logical, I thought this attitude was kind of interesting if you really take a look. Because if you consider Jesus' life, and last I checked as a Christian, our life is supposed to imitate or emulate or be that like Jesus' life. If you consider Jesus' life, isn't the whole of his life and the whole of the gospel a sacrificial life? I think I've used this example before. But if you were to uh, plan out Jesus' career arc on a map or on a, on a graph, it would be an upside-down parabola. Right? He starts out where? As the king and the creator of the universe, up on way high. And then at some point in life, he decides to come down way far as a human being. And then he lives his life, does his thing, and then he gets crucified, buried, descends into hell for a couple of days, it seems, and then rises back up to a human being and then ascends back to heaven only to come back and bring us all back to him. You seeing the upside-down parabola? But the funny thing is that you and I are all taught that our career arc is supposed to look very different. We start here as nothing or Chris, is, is this a regular parabola? Is this an upside-down parabola? Whatever, I'm not a mathematician. Whatever, but you, you get the point. But our career arc is said to be very different. We start out here as much of nothing. Then you grow and you learn and you do these things and then you acquire a high school degree maybe. And then after that you go to university and you acquire a college degree maybe. And then maybe for some of you get a master's or even a PhD. But after that you get a job. And you get a job and you earn. And in your job you get earnings and, and promotions and you get to the high VP exec level or whatever where you want to go. And you get up to the top of the thing and at some point they'll say you start on the downhill curve. You're over the hill. And the rest of it is just downhill from here they say. And you just go back down until you, of course, reach the end of your grave, and then you're buried, and then that's it. Which is to say that it makes sense that many of us would say, no, I'm not ready to sacrifice yet because I haven't hit the top. I'm not over the hill yet. When I get to the over the hill part where my body's breaking down or whatever, I'm no longer in my prime or whatever that might be, then I'll start to sacrifice because I'll have time for that. But it's backwards, isn't it? And if you look at Paul's life, his life wasn't like the one that everyone else says. He started out really high, actually. He started out very educated, very rich, both Greek and Jew at the same time somehow. He started off persecuting Christians, actually, and Jesus. And then he went on the life and the walk of following Jesus. And then his life just started slowly going further and further down, being caught, imprisoned. And then at the very end, of course, he gets executed at the hands of a madman emperor. And then we all assume that Paul has risen resurrected, and is with Jesus and God now. So to say that we're going to wait seems off because Jesus' life was never like that. 
But even beyond this, I think, Paul's understanding of reality as a drink offering is not even just this logical explanation that his life was very much like Jesus's and maybe our life isn't pointing in that direction. But more so than this, I think Paul's understanding of his life as a poured out drink offering is a gift to him. I think he received a gift that all of us maybe are missing. And you might be thinking, wait, 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 wait. How is it that someone whose career arc went only lower and lower and lower, it seems, until the point of execution, how is it that you're saying that that's a gift that he received? That that understanding, that attitude is a gift. But I think it is. Why? And this might suck to say, but you and I have zero clue when our opportunity to give life unto others will actually come to an end. When you will actually no longer be able to say that on this earth I will live for others, love others, die to myself so that others might live. But not right now, Pastor, because I have things to do that are more important than that. I think if there's one thing we learned in 2016, is that you can never be too sure of when that last drop of wine is going to be poured out for you. And I think we look at the world and we go, yeah, it's happened in the world, yeah, but I think we don't ever think it hits home. No, no, it hit home for us. It hit home for us. Maybe you didn't recognize it, but it did. Maybe you bypassed it in your brain because it was too hard, but it hit home for us. I, yesterday, I saw there were people worshiping with us yesterday, people who will be at church today, who never would have imagined at the beginning of 2016 that their father wouldn't be here to worship with them. But that's a reality. Jonathan shared at the retreat. No one expected at the beginning of 2016 that we would be remembering one of his dear friends with a tree and a bench outside of his school rather than his physical presence in the cafeteria eating or laughing. My friend had a recent memorial for a four-month-old who died of infant, the sudden de infant death syndrome where literally just a kid goes to sleep one night, happy as can be, and then doesn't wake up in the morning. So wait, for what? Because you are absolutely certain that you'll have 2018 to look forward to? Because you're absolutely certain that you'll be sitting here maybe somehow in 2018? Because I'm not. And this is not a, like a guilt trip thing. This is just the reality of the world that we live in. See, Paul knew he couldn't wait. That's why he lived his life as one being poured out as a sacrifice. To give life unto others. That's why he didn't, wasn't wasting his time or even looking at starting well. He wanted to live well and finish well. Because he realized that at any moment, his final drop could come. And he didn't want to waste a single drop. But he wanted it to be something that was meaningful. This is why Paul says, later on in verse 6, and my time of my departure has come. The word for departure in Greek is the one that they used when they would untie the oxen, the yoke that was on the, on the oxen, 
right? The thing that goes around the neck when they pull the plow. It's the same word they would use to untie it so they could literally allow the cows and the oxen to depart from their work. It's this idea that we've been yoked, working hard, sacrificing and doing the hard toil. And then someday, at some point during the day, that someone will release us and we'll be able to be free. See, Paul saw his departure and his leaving and his last drop being poured out as not something that he needs to cling on to because he realized the hard toil of the work of this life, he was going to go on being released to enjoy the freedom and eternity and the joy and the peace and the no pain and all that stuff eternity. He was waiting for that. As I was on my way driving back home from uh, the airport, uh, my wife picked me up, Christina picked me up from the airport. Um, and she said she was driving, and she, had an, she just had an epiphany. She had heard about the, our friend who's mourning um, the infant that had died. And as she was praying, she said her heart just tore in half. Because she realized, if that can happen to that person, that could be my kids. I have three. You know them all, Mason, Connor, and Kara. I think we all assume that we'll all see Mason, Connor, and Kara graduate from high school that all of you will be old enough and have your own kids and you'll get to see my kids. You might even be at their graduations. You might be at my house celebrating the graduations, whatever they might be. You might see them drive their first car, maybe. But she looked me in the eye and she said, honey, I don't, I don't, I don't pretend to know when will be my final opportunity to do anything for them and with them. And so I want to live every single day trying to impart as much of the gospel kingdom life to them because there's not a moment to waste. That's what it means to live well. And then put ourselves in a position to finish well. See, this is why I think Paul's view of the past is stated in verse 7 is the way that it is. He says, I fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith. And I'm thankful that Paul put it this way. Because he's honestly calling this life what it really is. It's a fight and it's a race. The Christian life is a fight and a marathon to the end. And you, again, you might say, no, 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 pastor, I'm not down for that. I don't want my life to be a fight. I want it to be drama-free, pain-free, hurt-free, only joy and more joy and more joy. It seems to me, pastor, that you're presenting to me a Christian life that only means pain, shame, sorrow, sacrifice, all this language and talk that I don't want to be any part of. But I'll tell you, no, 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 you're seeing it differently. See, life as it's presently constituted here on earth is one of pain, hurt, and shame. Whether you are a Christian or not, you're going to find pain, hurt, and shame. Ask anybody in the world whether that's true or not. Every life on earth, with or without God, is one in which pain and sorrow and terror and tragedy can hit at any moment. But a life with God as a poured out sacrifice, that's the way to have life, joy, and peace. To fight against all that tells you that God's life isn't the way, isn't the best. To fight against everything that says that God's way is stupid and worthless. To fight against the enemy who wants to see you enjoy nothing. The way through it all, Paul says, I kept the faith. Literally, he held on, he preserved, he guarded against everything his faith throughout the entire fight and the race, keeping hold so that he could then say, it's my time to depart. Now, the striking reality of many of the things is I'm a pastor. And many of you know the story, but when I decided to become a pastor, my dad disowned me. 
because he thought that I was choosing, intellectually, cognitively choosing a life of suffering. And I said, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. You've got it all wrong. He even now, to this day, apologizes to my wife all the time on the phone. He says, Menudi, Bianada, I'm sorry that you had to marry this man. And what he means by that is you had to marry a pastor, one that's not going to be able to make a whole lot of money and provide for you and give you all the things that you need. Now, again, I may be boasting, but I don't think I am. I think I'm just stating the facts as it is. Because I chose to follow God, because I live my life the way that he tells me to, because I invite him and obey in every situation, and because my life is a poured out sacrifice offering, and my life is always about that all the time, or at least I strive to, I would dare say that I would put my life, my family's life, up against any single person in the entire world and say, see who has more joy, more peace, more kindness, more gentleness, more life than me. Bring it because I don't see it. And I look at the people around me, the people who really follow God, and look at their lives, and I see the same thing in a world that can try to tear you all apart in this fight and this race. People who keep and preserve the faith are the ones who live with the most joy, goodness, kindness, gentleness, peace, patience, self-control, love, and life. I mean, think about it. If you were stuck in a prison cell the way that Paul was, would you be able to say the things that he said? Think back to 2016. People look at me when I was in Orlando, and people go, man, you're like, your church must be like freaking awesome. Like you sound so happy. Like you sound like you love your job and you love your church and everything must be great and hunky-dory. And I'm like, things are great, but they're not hunky-dory. And then I just started to recount some of the stuff that happened. It all started with a student who came to our church for a little while. Her mom committed suicide in her home. That's how the year 2016 started. And then we went through tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, it seemed like. Heart being ripped to pieces again and again and again. But as I stand and look at 2016, I think we as a community, the leaders, the teachers, most of you, we have fought the good fight. We have stayed the course. We have kept the faith. And many of you are faces that show me, lives that show me that we have. See, at Expressions, at the retreat, it wasn't this thing of like where we're going to go. It was a reflection of what God has done in our lives. There are many of you sitting in here who I didn't think might not be sitting in here at this time of the year because of what happened. But that you're still here. God is still with you. If anything, you're stronger more peaceful, more joyful now than you were before. Why? Because you've kept the faith. You've guarded it. God has guarded it for you. He's helped you. We're fighting the good fight. And we have joy and peace and kindness in the midst of all of that. And if your 2016 was one without too much trouble, blessed are you. But I can almost guarantee you it's not going to last. At some point, something will come. And I think Paul then is able to finish well and live well because he has a view, a proper view of the future. In verse 8, he says, in the future. See, Paul was able to live well and finish well because he knew that when his time had come to be poured out, 
that he was going to finally meet the righteous judge, he says. I mean, for most of us in our context, we would say, ooh, no, I, don't, I don't know if I want to meet the judge. Because every time we think about a judge, we think, oh, we've generally done something bad. We need to be judged. And then the punishment is likely to come. And the punishment is not so good. But for Christians and for Paul, this is the moment we're all waiting for. This is the day that we finally have come to meet our righteous judge, Jesus. The one who, though he knew no sin, became sin so that we might not have to and therefore have life. The one whose life was poured out as a sacrifice on the cross. The one who indeed fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. And the one who now sits as the righteous judge because he has endured it all. That's the future we're going to. I hope and I pray that when my time has come, that I'll look at whoever's around and I'll say it's time for my departure. The yoke is coming off, being set free forever and ever and ever. Which is why I hope, and I've said this to you a few times, that whenever it's my time to come, call me crazy, but I'm going to demand that people do not wear black, that they wear colors, maybe even white and sky blue with funky bow ties. Why? Because my life is a poured out drink offering. It's the only way to live and therefore be put in position to finish well. My beloved friends of Poeba, without which I would not be who I am today. As we look to a new year, may we realize, though it is a new year in the calendar sense, and though we've come through another crazy year in 2016 full of ups and downs, maybe what I'm challenging us to do isn't to resolve to really change anything or a bunch of things, to resolve to do a bunch of things better but to change our view of the past, the present, and the future. That what we have is representatives, representations of the good fight, people who've kept the course, those whose lives are being poured out as an offering so that our lives can be an endeavor to give life unto others. That we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, our righteous judge, knowing that that is where we're headed. And it's because of him who saw what he saw, who knew what he knew and did what he did, that we'd be able to live well. So that maybe in 2018, again, if we're all fortunate enough to get there, that we would all be able to say, God, you've helped us to live well. And we're in position to finish well whenever that may come. And maybe we'll actually be able to live, as Jesus says. Focus on this day and this day only. For tomorrow we'll have enough troubles on its own. So that our bodies, everything we are, is indeed a living sacrifice. And I hope that that would be our resolve for 2017. You and I would follow Jesus, follow God. And then be able to look back at each day and say, God, you were good in it. So however you're reflecting upon 2016, whatever the kind of year it may have been, and I'm sure for all of us it was a lot of, a lot of things, good, bad, and ugly. 
Maybe you want to take a look at one another, take a look at this group, take a look at what we have. And realize all those things may come, but if we continue to live the way that I think we've always strived to do as a community here, which is to love God and to love one another, to care for one another, to be gracious and merciful to one another, to do as Christ instructs us to do, and I think we can continually say again and again in and through our community that God is good and that we're fighting the fight. And that we will enjoy much peace, joy, goodness, and life through and through because of who he is and who he is in us and in this community. So I give thanks to God and to all of you for a wonderful 2016. We look forward to the many things that God will do. And I hope and I pray and I trust that God will indeed take us where we need to get to. And may we all together fight the fight, keep the course, keep the faith our vision on the future as we return to Revelation next week, a vision of what reality really is because of Jesus and what he's about to do. Let us pray. God, I think it's amazing that we get to continually celebrate a new year and Father, I just want to lift up a prayer for those that we know in which 2017 looks utterly different than the way that 2016 did when it started. And there are many, even close to us, but also far out in this country and in the world. And so we pray for them. And we hope that the many who indeed did, that they, as Paul saw, would see their life as a departure, knowing that they were headed to be in eternity with you. We pray that over these families and these people, our friends, our loved ones. And as we look forward to a new 2017, Father, there's a lot of anticipating, a lot of excitement and energy about it. But may we never lose sight of the fact that each and every single day that we've lived has been one where your grace has been abounding, your mercy, your goodness in your life. So we give you thanks for this community. We give you thanks for your life that is indwelling in us and through us. And we pray that continually each day we would see more and more of you and draw ever closer to you and to one another. That we would help each other live well and be in position to finish well. God, you are God over all of us and there is no one like you. So we stand before you amazed, thankful, humble. May we continue to do so each day in and day out. We give you thanks and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Join us as we respond as Philip and the crew uh, leads us out.